Psalm 45. Psalm 45. That's a psalm the Jews have always regarded as a messianic psalm. Um, some uh, churches that only sing psalms uh, call this uh, the Christmas psalm or a Christmas psalm. This would be a psalm that would be sung um, for Christmas as it just points us in such a clear way to our Lord Jesus. Psalm 45. Let's give our attention to the Lord's, uh, God's Word and um, see our Lord Jesus portrayed for us here. Uh, to the choir master, according to lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the, hearts of the, in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of a fear. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause, cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray as we begin. Oh, Father, uh, we uh, come now tonight gladly to hear your word. Uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself and you've revealed Jesus in your word. Give us eyes tonight to see him and to love him, uh, to be devoted to him, for he is our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message uh, this evening uh, comes from the uh, title of the psalm itself, which uh, it's called A Masculine of the Sons of Korah, A Love Song. This is a love song, and that's our title. I've read articles written by uh, concerned uh, Reformed pastors uh, decrying uh, a common genre in contemporary Christian music called uh, the Jesus is my boyfriend genre. Uh, there was uh, certainly reasons for concern. Well, one of the articles, uh, a man wrote about visiting a church, and uh, for the last hymn, uh, the congregation broke out into a rousing rendition of Peggy Lee's 1963 classic, uh, I Will Follow Him. You may remember, I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go, right? I love him, I love him, I love him. 
All right, you're not, you're not maybe catching on, but uh, it was a classic. <clears throat> Where he goes, I'll follow, I'll follow, I'll follow the older of you, uh, probably remember. Uh, is that appropriate? And if not, why not? I remember hearing a gospel artist sing, You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings, as a, a, a love song, a praise song to the Lord. Uh, the, the problem with the Jesus is my uh, boyfriend genre is not necessarily that, that, that the words are not true. They, they can be uh, construed, I think, often as true. The problem is that they are not true enough. They're not true enough. A Jesus isn't the wind beneath your wings, uh, he's not your life coach. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the great conqueror who came to this earth and gave his life bearing the wrath of God due you for your sin in order to purchase you to be his bride so that you might reign with him forever in unspeakable glory and honor in a new heaven and a new earth where there will be only righteousness and we will dwell with God himself. That is not wind beneath your wings. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a magnificent difference between the glory of the gospel and, and sentimentalized uh, pop 40 songs that, uh, that speak about a good thing, the romantic love between a man and a wife. But the gospel is, is, is much better and deeper and more magnificent. It is, it is this ancient, awesome, eternal truth of a death-conquering, sin-pardoning, and eternal life-transforming act of God. And that's the love that Psalm 45 is about. It's the romance that vibrates underneath and hums underneath all of created reality and that will be evident in all of the new heaven and new earth. I think this is why Chesterton said that romance is the deepest thing in life. It is deeper than reality. That's the love that we'll be looking at tonight, this mysterious, uh, bottomless love of God for his people. That's the story of Scripture. The storyline of the Bible is a, a story of, of heavenly love, and it leads to a heavenly wedding. Jesus often in his parables talked about the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. He spoke of the bridegroom and the ladies-in-waiting, the, 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 the bridal party. Uh, the Bible ends in Revelation 21 with a vision of a wedding day. And, and, and so that's what we're about here in Psalm 45. Now, if you remember from Psalm 44, this, is, this psalm is in stark contrast to the lament of Psalm 44, where there are sort of accusations raised about uh, the ways of God. And, and, um, and, so, and so now we have this sort of startling contrast, but the psalms are arranged. They're not just randomly placed there like a book of poetry, uh, but they are, they, they're arranged by an author, an editor. Uh, there's, there's, there's connections. And, and I think Psalm 45 follows Psalm 44 because it is the answer to the, the concluding prayer of Psalm 44. If you have your Bible, notice Psalm 44 ends with this cry to the Lord, rise up, come to our help, Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And Psalm 45 is, is God's answer to that prayer. This is what redemption looks like. It looks like a king, a mighty conquering king who takes for himself a bride. Uh, we see here Christ revealed in Old Testament prophecy. 
Uh, we know that the king being spoken of here is a messianic king, the Christ king, because uh, the language is superlative. The, this language would not hold true for any earthly king. No Israelite king for certain, but no king at all. <coughs> Excuse me. Kidner, Derek Kidner in his commentary says, this king is the embodiment of all that gives kingship its unique glory. In other words, this king supplies the meaning to the word king. This king... Um, provides the glory that belongs to the office. And so let's look together at this king. Uh, we're going to begin, I just want to quickly ask the question, verse 1 sort of stands, it's an introduction to the psalm, stands on its own, and, and, and it's good just to ask the question, well, who's writing this? When, when the writer says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme, and I address my verses to the king, who is, who's writing that? Who's speaking in this psalm? And the, the, the wonderful answer is that it is God himself speaking and, 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 and inspiring these words. Uh, Hebrews speaks of this in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. The writer there is uh, just showing the glory of Jesus Christ and, and, and the superiority of Christ to the angels. So he says in, in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes a psalm. And then uh, in verse 8, and he says, uh, but of the Son, he says, that is, of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Direct quote from Psalm 45. The writer of the letter of the Hebrews believes that it is God himself speaking of Jesus in Psalm 45. So we have that on good authority. The Spirit is speaking. This is the Spirit of God prophesying about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he wants us to see a king. That much is evident. And so let's note together, this: first of all, the beauty of the king. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. You have here in the Hebrew the superlative, the repetition of the word beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, most beautiful are you. Sort of like holy, holy, holy. Uh, there's a unique, unrivaled, unparalleled beauty about Jesus. Now, we're told in the book of Isaiah that there was no comeliness to him, that we should desire him. And so Jesus was most likely not physically attractive. And yet, when the writer here in Psalm 45 speaks about the king, he says, the most handsome of all the sons of men. Well, how, how are we to understand that? In fact, Isaiah 33, 17 says, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. There is beauty, true, genuine, unrivaled beauty about Jesus Christ. What is that beauty about? Well, the verse, the text tells us, uh, grace is poured upon your lips. And therefore, God has blessed you forever. That the beauty of Christ is, is primarily the beauty of the marvelous grace of God for sinners. The the breathtaking glory of, of the love and kindness of God for the least deserving. And that's exactly what we read about Jesus, isn't it, when he comes. John says, we saw him, the only begotten of the Father. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
Jesus, as he ministered, was noted for his grace. Luke 4, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Creation tells us that there is a God, and it tells us in unmistakable terms so that no one is left without excuse. You can't live in this creation and stand before the Creator on the last day and say, I had no idea. But creation, you see, isn't able to manifest the grace of God, which is at the, the heart of His glory. I'm a, a slow to anger, abounding in compassion. The grace of God. And Jesus Christ has come, you see, to, to magnify and manifest the beauty, the glory, the astonishing truth of God's grace for sinners. That's His beauty. That's the, the glory of Jesus, the, the, the grace of God that emanated from his life and from his lips. If you would watch him and you see the way he, he dealt with a weeping woman who comes to him and, 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 uh, and, and wipes his, her, his feet with her tears. And the, men, the, the Pharisees and, and, and the men standing around knowing she's, she's a, a prostitute saying to themselves, if Jesus were a man of God, he'd know who, the, who this woman is. And, and they're completely missing the point. He is a man of God. And he knows exactly who this is. But he's full of grace. He's full of grace. And consequently, King Jesus is blessed by God forever, the writer says. The Spirit says, blessed by God forever, exalted by God, given the name that is above every name. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 verse 5 speaks of Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Most likely referring here to Psalm 45. But the beauty of Jesus is not simply uh, found in his, his, his grace. It is found also in, in the fact that he is a great warrior king. A great warrior king. Remember, uh, we said this morning that uh, the office of king had a theological significance, that God uh, raises up men to be kings like Adam and Saul because uh, the king is tasked with um, demonstrating and carrying out God's sovereign purposes on earth. His theocratic kings, the kings that he raises to reign uh, over his people, are called to reign for that purpose, to, to manifest, to demonstrate, and carry out God's sovereign rule on earth. Well, Adam failed, didn't he? And, and Saul failed, and every king of Israel failed. And, and, and we have that desperate cry of the, of the angel in Revelation chapter 5. If you remember, the angel takes this scroll, and, and he's holding it, and it's sealed. And the angel cries out over this world, who is worthy to take the scroll and, and to open the seals? And that scroll contains, you see, the sovereign purposes of God for the world. Of all that God intends to do to magnify his glory and to bring his creation to its, to its uh, full intended purpose. And, and the angel uh, cries out, who is worthy? And John says, I wept and I wept. Because no one was found worthy in the whole world. No one was able to unfold the sovereign purposes, the saving purposes of God for this world. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I looked and there I saw one, a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain. And he took the scroll and he broke the seals. That's our Lord Jesus. And that's the conquering king that is foretold here in Psalm 45. Notice particularly verses 3 and following. Gird on your sword, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. We tend to think of Jesus in soft pastels, gentle greens and pinks. But that's not Jesus, not the biblical Jesus. He is in truth stark, bold, and primary. He's a sword-wearing, stallion-riding, arrow-shooting, enemy-destroying king and warrior. He battles against forces of evil and for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. There's a terrifying strength and a righteous zeal about King Jesus as he wages his holy war against all that is evil. This is the Jesus of Scripture. If you have your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 19 and just to remind ourselves of the picture that John sees, the vision John has of this Jesus in his glory as a king, as a warrior. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word, the Logos of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That is quite a sentence. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Is it any wonder why the elders fell down and worshiped? Friends, this is, this is the biblical Jesus. This is our king, a warrior, a mighty, mighty warrior. His throne, we're told, is forever and ever He will never be conquered. And he is a good king, verses 6b and 7. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. In words of uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles, uh, Jesus, like Aslan, is is not safe. Remember, Lucy asks, is is this lion, Aslan, safe? I would be quite nervous to meet a lion. And, and, And Mr. Beaver says, oh, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. I tell you, he's the king. Jesus is not safe, 
Praise God. He's not tame, but he's majestically good, gloriously good in all his being. He, he loves righteousness and wars with wickedness because he hates wickedness. He is all the goodness of God, good in his being, and so because of who he is, must love righteousness and goodness and must hate wickedness and he then comes to destroy the devil and to destroy all the works of the devil. He's a good king and he's a glad king. Look at verses 7b and through 9. He's a glad king. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces stringed instruments make you glad. Our king is not an annoyed, gruff warrior. The psalm emphasizes that he's a glad king. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. He's robed in the aromas of joy, fragrant myrrh and aloes and cassia. He dwells in beauty in ivory palaces where stringed instruments make him glad. The scene is, is uh, of, of, of beauty and goodness and peace and richness and joy, gladness. He's an exultant Savior. When Jesus came into this world and, and, and did the will of his Father and died on that cross, he was pursuing joy. The joy of doing his Father's good and perfect will. The joy of rescuing his precious bride. The joy of making war with the devil and conquering that ancient foe. There's a great text in, in Luke chapter 10 where the, uh, the disciples have been, have been sent out and they come back and they're reporting that um, lepers were, were, were healed and the blind received their sight. And, and, and uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The kingdom of the devil was, was being assaulted by the forces of God. And we're told in, in chapter 21 that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He's a happy warrior of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. And so this is, this is the king, a gracious, beautiful king a mighty warrior king, a good and glad king. This is Jesus, revealed in the pages of, of Scripture, revealed by the Spirit of God himself. But the king is not alone. At his side, notice verse 9, there's a beautiful queen, an exalted queen and her, and her royal a bridal party. So verse 9, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of a fear. Question, of course, who is, this, who is this queen? There's great things said about her. The psalm um, moves on to show that she's an exalted queen. She's at his right hand. She's received a position of, of authority and power. She, she reigns with the king. His authority is granted to her. So she's exalted. She's also beautiful. She's robed in the gold of a fear. The gold of a fear was, was precious, pure gold. It was what was used in Solomon's temple. Uh, it, it stands for weight and glory and beauty. Think of this beautiful queen who wears this, this beautiful robe of gold. Uh, there's, there's, there's glory 
and status and beauty about her. She's beloved and betrothed. Verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. Why? The king will desire your beauty. And since, since he is your Lord, bow to him. She's desired by the king. She's been betrothed to the king. She belongs now to him. And so the, the, the text says, so turn away from your father's house. Leave behind everything else and join into this union with this glorious king. And she is glorious on her way to the wedding. All glorious, verse 13, is the princess in her chamber. With robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes, she's led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. This is a wedding party. It's a wedding day. So who is the queen? This exalted, beautiful, beloved queen, the lady on her way to a wedding party. And the stunning answer, of course, is this is you. This is a psalm about you. The queen is the church, the bride of Christ. This is a prophecy about you and, 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 and me, about the church of Jesus Christ. A vision of what the church already is in principle and is going to one, one day be in its full manifestation. Everything that's true about the queen here in Psalm 45 is true about you and me. We've been exalted as the church, the bride. We've been exalted. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that on a Thursday morning when you're doing laundry. It's just what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. You've been raised with Christ, and you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Paul rebukes the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They're having lawsuits, and he says, what in the world are you doing? You're bringing your issues before worldly pagan judges. Don't you understand? You're going to judge angels? And you can't handle these little disputes that happen in the church? you have any sense of the glory that belongs to you? These are common Corinthian Christians. And these common Corinthian Christians are being told they're going to judge angels. They're going to reign with Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that we will reign with him. We will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. The world looks at the church now and laughs and scorns. We just, we're just so... We're just so normal and awkward and homely, powerless, deluded. But that is not what the Spirit sees. When the Spirit looks at the bride of Christ, he sees a queen standing at the right hand of the king, destined to reign with him forever. And the church has been Betrothed and beloved and desired by Christ. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 6 to those who have been called to belong to Jesus. That's the love story. Called to belong to Jesus. That defines the church. And we're awaiting, you see now, our final wedding day. And, and while we wait, it's essential that we forget our father's house, where we've come from, our, our sort of our, our native Land and, and we commit ourselves now to our, to our new Lord, our, our Savior, our, 
our bridegroom. Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I feel a divine jealousy for you because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so to leave uh, old, old, old ties to the things of this world and to commit ourselves with, with all of our heart to our Savior and Lord. We are the, the beloved, betrothed people of Christ and we are deeply desired. This is the, the great mystery of the gospel. How could it be that the king would desire people like us? And yet we're told that the king would desire our beauty, that the king is is described as one who loved us and, and sought us out when we were lost in sin, who rejoices over us with singing, who died to make us his very own, not because we were beautiful, but to make us beautiful. It's his delight to do this. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And so we're, we're made beautiful by Christ, by the work that he's doing, robed in purity and glory and honor. If we could see the church as she really is, as the Spirit sees the church, we'd be tempted to worship. Can you imagine what it would be like to be beautiful? I mean really beautiful, not just the, the external stuff that's day by day fading, the, the beauty that passes, but beautiful like Jesus can you imagine what it would be, what it, what it would be like to, to be beautiful in reality, full of grace and full of goodness and full of truth? Real beauty, beauty that has weight to it, beauty that has glory to it and honor to it. Well, that's the way the church sees, that's the way the Lord sees the church and that's what the church is going to be by his power. We're going to be that robed bride, robed in gold, made glorious, beautiful, worthy. So what we read about in Revelation chapter 21, where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, that's what God is doing today in our lives. He's preparing us as the bride. He is at work today to make you and me beautiful with this beauty of grace and, and goodness and truth. And one day, he's going to lead us into the presence of the bridegroom. That's what he promises to do. One day, the dwelling place of God will be with men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear. And death shall be no more and there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Because everything that was former has passed away and though he who is seated on the throne, the king will say, behold, I am making all things new. Friend, do you ever wish you could see Jesus? And do you ever wish... Um, you could just really get a sense of what he's like. Psalm 45 is a great place to go. It's given so that you could see Jesus and, and, and seeing him worship him. And do you ever wish you could see your future of what it will be like for you in heaven? And Psalm 45, again, shows you 
what it will be like. It shows you um, that you will be beautiful and glorious, weighed down with, with honor. Psalm 45 is written to help us see our destiny. That all that is ours in Jesus Christ, this is what is ours. To be loved by Christ as his bride, to reign with Christ as his, as his queen in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. And so the call for you and me today is to live as though it were true. To take this truth about Jesus and this truth about your destiny to where you work tomorrow. And no matter what the circumstances of your life, nothing will change this. To take, to take these truths into your, uh, your trials, to take these truths into your temptations, to take these truths into your prayers. That this, this truth isn't just a nice idea that you, that you heard one Sunday night on a, on, a, on a psalm you'd never heard of before, but that this truth becomes the reality increasingly, you see, for, for how we think about who we are and who Jesus is about what's going on right now in our life and in the world. God is making for himself a bride. And what will happen when the king comes again. May we be ready. Amen. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, this glorious king. We thank you, oh God, that he has come to fight this fight on our behalf. To rescue us, his bride. It's an astonishing thing to be the bride of Christ. We cannot imagine the glory that awaits us, and the glory that belongs to us even today. But Lord, we need to take these things into the reality of our life and into tomorrow morning when it's cold and gray and the week stretches out and ahead of us and maybe we're tired. And Lord, I pray that we could find warmth and light and comfort and joy in knowing that we belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that one day very soon he's coming again. And until then he is at work preparing a house for us and preparing us for that house where we will dwell with him forever. And so Lord, give us patience and give us joy. Give us peace. We are your people. We are the bride, all by grace. And so we give you the praise. In Jesus' name.